This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is 3, 2, 1. The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. It's a beautiful day to spread some freedom. Very happy to be here with you. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, We're going to have a busy week in the Hut. I've already got a lot, a lot on the mind today. Tons of guests lined up. It's going to be crazy. We're going to cover a lot of territory. But I wanted to start with something that I I don't think is necessarily uh, the, the, the top news item Today, we'll get into some of the other stuff, uh, the call from Trump to Taiwan and Standing Rock and the pipeline diverted. A lot of news, as well as some economic uh, policy debate and discussion going on about trade and what Trump might do there. We've got, we got a lot to cover, to be sure. But I wanted to get into something else. You see, there's been a lot happening within the ranks of conservative writers, pundits, radio hosts, whatever, over the last 18 months or so. As a result of the Trump phenomenon of, of Trumpism. And along with that, and th- that's, of course, nothing new to you, and you've been along uh, for that ride with me. Uh, but this notion of the alt-right has gotten even more attention as the campaign went on. And in fact, I would argue now that the campaign is over and Trump is the president-elect, you're hearing so much about the alt-right, and you're only hearing about it in a certain way. I have some distrust in this, uh, and I wanted to sort of make my case to you. There was, a, believe it or not, a worthwhile piece in the New York Times from a couple of days ago, uh, on a, a opinion piece, a Sunday opinion piece, I guess that's yesterday, what the alt-right really means. And it's a piece that finally uh, takes the tone that I think should be taken this, which is the alt-right is not really something that anybody can one way or another, uh, defined very easily. Uh, the piece is written by Christopher Caldwell, who's a senior editor at the Weekly Standard. So, look, the Weekly Standard is the closest thing you're going to get, I mean, the Weekly Standard and National Review, to the sort of prototypical, uh, highbrow, intellectual conservatives, you know, sitting around in a room with oil paintings of, of men on horseback and frigates, not just ships, frigates, uh, Smoking cigars and talking about policy and, you know, their favorite obscure 
conservative presidents, right? That, that's Weekly Standard is right there, and then a National Review. Those would be sort of top of the heap. And so you have somebody taking a, a real look, a real analysis. And, of course, that's why it's published in the New York Times, but it's not a New York Times editor because the New York Times has already invested itself in the alt-right is this massive boogeyman. Uh, the alt-right is a sort of digital 21st century neo-Nazi movement that has its tentacles already firmly attached to the to the Trump administration. And that this is a then uh, it's not just ominous. This is a, a disaster that is waiting to happen. But when you get into this piece, you see that the alt-right uh, or you see that the case that's made here is that the alt-right used to be something else. And we should be very careful about this when all of a sudden the way a term used to be applied shifts uh, dramatically and it becomes sort of a a catch all term. Uh, They are crafting alt-right a term as an absolute pejorative, meaning it's going to be used as a verbal weapon going forward. And this will be true on policy matters as well. Um, it is, as I said, it's sort of the creation of a digital boogeyman. It's it's a 21st century KKK with sympathizers around the globe. Now, you see, interesting to cite the KKK, which still exists, but very small and, and irrelevant in the modern context, but has a history of horrific violence and doing some very bad things. And at one point was not small at all. The alt-right is being built up into something that it is uh, that it is not, in my opinion. And, and I wanted to take some time with you today to sort of make my case about that. Uh, you're hearing a lot about this guy, Spencer. I- I've been working in right-wing media now for over five years, almost six years. Isn't it interesting? Even to say right-wing media, it almost, almost has a pejorative sound to some people. But that's what it is. I'm a conservative. I'm on the right. I've been a conservative for as long as I've cared about anything going on outside of, you know, my schoolwork and what time we were getting out for sports and grammar school or something. So... You see the way that they're using alt right now, and it has already slid into, as I said, an absolute pejorative. You, if you call somebody alt right, you're essentially saying they're racist, they're a neo Nazi. And that's not to say there aren't people who are neo Nazis who fall under this sort of broad umbrella of the alt right, but keep in mind, it's a new term. It's one that many of us hadn't heard until six, eight, maybe, maybe a month ago, maybe 12 months ago. It just sort of propped, uh, uh, popped up, and that is discussed in this piece. Uh, this is a, a few quotes from it. A new term, the alt-right is a new term for an informal and ill-defined collection of Internet-based radicals. Uh, the alt-right is not a large movement, but the prominence that it is enjoying in the early days of the Trump administration or Trump era uh, may tell us something about the way the country is changing. At least since the end of the Cold War, and certainly since the election of a black president in 2008, America's shifting identity, political, cultural, and racial, has given rise to many questions about who we are as a nation, end quote. Now, alt-right is not something that anybody really seems able to define accurately, but you're hearing more and more about how this guy, Spencer, who's a white nationalist, um, and others, including outright neo-Nazis, are part of the alt-right, and not just part of it, but what you're seeing is a shift from the fringe to the vanguard. Very interesting how this happens with the alt-right movement, what the left is doing, what the media is doing in this case, and how they do the exact opposite in others. Let me sort of explain what I mean here. 
you have a let's say a, a, a tiny percentage of whatever the alt right actually is, or I don't know. Let's 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 say it's ten percent of the alt right is neo Nazi, and that's a completely that's just for the sake of discussion, for the sake of argument. I have no idea, and I don't think anybody has any idea. But we know that it's a minority um, is is sort of officially neo Nazi. They are doing everything they can by talking about this group of two hundred people that met in D.C. recently. They being New York Times, Washington Post, mainstream media outlets across the board to create the perception that those 200 weren't a sort of uh, loud and, dare I say, deplorable, but actually deplorable minority, um, but are the vanguard. They're the sort of, you know, uh, intellectual heart and soul of the alt-right movement, these white nationalists that gathered together, a couple of hundred of them in D.C. I mean, uh, there are many thousands of communists in this country, members of the American Communist Party. There are uh, many thousands of people belong to the Church of Satan. I mean, you, you can get a couple of hundred idiots together to think about anything and talk about anything. But do they have any influence? Do they have any power? Are they part of a larger movement or not? What they're trying to do here is say that they're not just a, a fringe attachment to this movement. They're not the extremists. This is key, right? They're not the fringe of the alt-right. They're the vanguard. They are the shock troops. They are at the front. They are the first line of the phalanx, if you will. And I don't see the real evidence for that. And this is why I've been sort of uh, sitting around thinking a lot about this in recent days. You know, we used to before. I I don't think he'll do anything blaze related anymore is my sense, although maybe that's not true. But we had um, Milo Yiannopoulos uh, of Breitbart on the show a few times. And I enjoyed our conversations, and I thought we had uh, worthwhile things to discuss, to be sure. And he's somebody who's even cited in this piece is considering himself. Of course, he's uh, very openly gay, and uh, he's a, a young guy, and he's British, and not somebody you think of as a sort of uh, shaved head, skinhead, neo-Nazi, uh, white nationalist. One thing I learned, by the way, apparently the haircut where it's like long on top and short on the sides is referred to as a fat fasci. I had never heard that before. I learned some interesting things in this piece about the alt-right. Yeah, fashy haircut, uh, which is considered to be popular among some of the alt-right. Um, but watch what they do. They take, they take this fringe. They are defining. They are defining right now what the alt-right is. The media is defining it for you. And they're trying to make it as bad as possible. And as I said, they've elevated the worst elements of it now look at the way that they do that say with this alt-right this alt-right movement they tried by the way to do it with the tea party but there were no the problem they ran into there where there were there were no unsavory elements really it was the the tea party movement was remarkable for how law-abiding and uh and congenial and tame it was to all people you know uh, the worst thing that would happen at a at a tea party rally was somebody may have double parked or something i mean that's and the media was obviously very upset about that because they were hoping to do to the Tea Party what they have done to or they are doing now to the alt-right in terms of creating the perception in the public's mind that this is a, just a very bad thing, an irredeemable and bad thing. They tried with the Tea Party. They failed. Uh, and I'm not saying the Tea Party and the alt-right are, are similar or the same at all. I'm just saying the media effort is very similar and they have more to work with, a lot more to work with, with the alt-right than they did with the Tea Party, although, as is pointed out again in this Times piece, they used they have applied the term alt-right uh, to individuals that you would never think uh, would be 
considered today alt-right. Um, they've said in the past, for example, that or rather here, let me let me just read you a quote from this. Until Hillary Clinton's speech last summer, uh, a similarly broad idea prevailed of what the alt-right was. The Southern Poverty Law Center's webpage on the movement traces some of its roots to libertarian followers of Ron Paul and traditionalist Christians. Neither were were in evidence at the National Policy Institute Conference in Washington. The adjective alt-right has been attached in the past to those like the undercover documentarian James O'Keefe. And then it also goes on to talk about Milo. So they used to use alt-right for James O'Keefe, for Milo, for sort of some uh, Gamergate, these uh, video game players who were upset because feminists didn't like the objectification of female characters in video games. I'm not overly familiar with the Gamergate thing, but that's... But what it was, it seemed like it was an internet effort to do to the left what the left does to everybody else, which is go on offense, which is to mock people, which is to, yes, troll people, which is to get into it in the digital battlefield of ideas in a way that you'll have an impact. Yes, sort of a digital shock troop effect. That was what the alt-right was for a while. And this is as I came to as I came to learn of it and hear about it and see it talked about more. And then there were these people who were uh, acting as the or, or attaching themselves to it or saying they were a part of it who were outright uh, vile racists who were using Twitter and, and other uh, social media platforms for just complete and outright harassment. Right. To sort of denigrate people, to just put up the most disgusting and horrific stuff imaginable to um, dox people, put up their personal information. Again, all talked about. I'll, I'll post this piece for you. Um, but what you see happening right now is there's been this sort of forgetting, intentional forgetting of what this movement was initially by its current detractors described as. Now it's become something else. You know, if, if this were radical Islam. They'd say, oh, well, this is hijack. You know, this some people can't be allowed to hijack. I was thinking it's interesting when we talk about Islam and hijacking gets discussed. Uh, but to hijack the broader religion, a vast majority of Muslims are peaceful. You hear this all the time. Well, a vast majority of Muslims are peaceful, but a small minority of Muslims create a lot of problems all over the world. Right. We know this. This is factual. This is true. Black Lives Matter. Not only do a small minority of Black Lives Matter adherents create very serious problems, disturbances, riots, burn down buildings, shoot, murder police officers, assassinate police officers. But the entire movement is based upon a series of lies. But yet the media sort of will always go to great lengths, tremendous intellectual acrobatics in order to make it make sure that anyone does anything that's really bad, like killing cops. Well, they're clearly not representative of the movement. And even those who do bad things along the way, like burn down buildings or uh, say violent things or say uh, racially inflammatory things, they're not representative of the movement. They're not cop-hating, right? They want police reform. They're constantly trying to massage the public perception of Black Lives Matter. They're constantly doing that. And they're doing the exact opposite with the alt-right, as I see it. They're solidifying this conception of this group. They're making sure they can throw into the stew as many neo-Nazis and skinheads and, and, and assorted racist morons as they can but also now, I suppose, those that were referred to as alt-right in the past, as, they, as is pointed out in this piece, uh, some traditionalist Christians and some Ron Paul supporters and people that have ideas that conflict 
with the progressive orthodoxy and that they want to fight about it. They, they don't want to sit around and talk about, you know, Von Mises and how we can maybe get Paul Ryan to pass certain legislation. They want to kick some dust up and, and throw some punches online, so to speak, hopefully just online, not actually in real life. But they're now all tainted here as well. They're all a part of this, too. And I just watched this. You know, they're doing the reverse of what they do for Islamism and Black Lives Matter. They're elevating and creating a vanguard of the worst. They're painting with the broadest possible brush. They're abandoning any nuance or even an attempt at accuracy in favor of sweeping generalizations about this movement that's still being defined, that no one even really knows what it is, who's a part of it, and what its core concepts are. But it's useful to the left. That's the most important thing. It's useful because they are now creating a right-wing boogeyman that will overshadow adult and serious discussions about the Trump administration's policy and uh, his cabinet picks, everything. This is now this is now going to be the way that they frighten people, right? The alt-right, all oh, the alt the neo-Nazis are coming, the white nationalists are coming for you. You know, all 100 of them. Take a break here back in a few. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and, and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton. On the Blaze Radio Network. The team, I just got a few more minutes to finish my thoughts on this, then we've got to move on to some more news of the day stuff or from over the weekend, too. I, I just am preparing you. I think alt-right is going to be the term used for anybody that uh, is opposed to, you know, it, it's going to become a sort of catch-all term for evil right-winger, and it's going to, they're going to use it very broadly. So first, they need to consolidate it in the public's mind as this is neo-Nazis. This isn't a sort of loosely defined and affiliated group of, people that are just sort of fringe right in different ways on different parts of the fringe. No, it's neo-Nazi skinhead uh, right-wingers. And then it's going to be used as a battering ram against everybody that wants to have on the right, that wants to have a serious discussion about immigration, multiculturalism. You know, if you if you say that something that Trump does is good, oh, you're one of those alt-righters, you know. Oh, you're part of the alt-right. This is what's going to happen. This is why they're so invested in this. This is going to become because remember, when you're trying to mobilize mobs, words, imagery, sounds, slogans, that's what works. 
nuanced arguments. You know, me sitting here and discussing, oh, well, but they used to say the alt-right was, I mean, no one thinks James O'Keefe is, is, a, is a racist or a skinhead or a neo-Nazi, and they would say that he was alt-right. So how was he alt-right a year ago, and now the alt-right is skinheads? I'm, I'm confused. Oh, I see. It's useful for the left. You know, if you wanted to sort of look at Soviet, the Soviet lexicon, anytime they wanted to say that somebody was bad, they would just say that the person was a uh, counter-revolutionary, right? Oh, they're a counter-revolutionary or they're a subversive because the most important thing was the revolution, right? The Marxist revolution and, you know, the, the continuation of Lenin's legacy and all this stuff, even though, of course, that was all just propaganda and nonsense and an excuse for oppression. But you're a counter-revolutionary. That's all that had to be said. You're a subversive. That's all that had to be said. Later on, it became, in the context, particularly in Europe, a fascist, right? If you were right-wing, you were a fascist, even though fascists come from the left. It's actually a movie by Witt Stillman, I think it's in the early 90s, called Barcelona. There's a young naval officer who's visiting Barcelona. And people just call him a fascist because he's part of the American Navy, right? Oh, fascist. And they throw the term around. There's even an exchange between Marta and Fred, the naval officer, where she says, I think there's something fascist about a boy who immediately talks about marrying a woman he likes. And then Fred, the naval officer, says, I don't think Ted is a fascist of the marrying kind. Um, Also, the best line Fred has is, I think it's well known that anti-Americanism has its roots in sexual impotence, at least in Europe. So there's some good lines in the movie. Point here is that fascism just became bad and, and a way to club your opponents into submission. Alt-right is not, it, it, whether it's, you know, 2% or, or 50% actual racists, they're conjuring up this massive threat to the republic of the alt-right, and they're then going to just sort of use this as a shotgun to, sh- to spray at the entirety of the right. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, team, the media was having a bit of a freakout over the weekend. They were acting like we were at literal DEFCON 2 because Donald Trump spoke to the president of Taiwan on the phone. The president-elect of the United States spoke to the president of Taiwan. You had people tweeting out from various news outlets that this is the kind of thing that could lead to a war. And they were just apoplectic. They were really in shock and uh, they found the whole thing abhorrent. Is it really such a big deal? In fact, Could you argue this is a good idea? Let's talk to Gordon Chang. He's the author of two books, The Coming Collapse of China and Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Gordon Chang, great to have you, sir, as always. Thank you so much, Buck. All right. A phone call was made. What's the big deal? Trump speaks to the president of Taiwan. So what? Well, the big deal here is that this could be the beginning of a reorientation of American foreign policy, breaking the policy of four decades. That would be a very good thing, because as we've seen, especially in the last three, four years, China is moving in unwelcome directions. It is trying to dismember its neighbors. It's proliferating nuclear weapons and ballistic missile technology to the North Koreans. It's closing up its market to American companies, forcing them out. So we need a new China policy. You know, people may say that this is not the China policy or this is not the way that it should be implemented. But nonetheless, we need something new and we should congratulate and certainly support Trump in changing that policy. 
Uh, can you give us some of the background here? It, it seems it's, it seems like there's a strange uh, a strange policy in place where you have the U.S. sort of prote- sort, uh, offering protection at some level, though it's never really been officially tested for Taiwan. China considers Taiwan to be Chinese territory. We sell missiles to Taiwan, though, but we won't recognize them diplomatically. Can you give everyone the, ba- the necessary background on that so we know why this is why this is, as you said, a big deal? Well, you know, 1972, Nixon went to Beijing. 1979, uh, President Carter broke relations with Taiwan, switched recognition to China. Um, we have what's known as a one-child China policy, but we also say that the status of Taiwan is unresolved. We acknowledge the Chinese position that they are um, the sovereign for Taiwan, but we don't necessarily agree with it. We just acknowledge that they take that position. Now, um, we want uh, the relations with Taiwan to be settled peacefully. That is the paramount U.S. goal here. What it, our goal, though, should be supporting another free society. Our Taiwan policy is unsustainable, Buck, because what we are doing is we are undermining a friendly free society to help an authoritarian state that is attacking our values across the board. That, to me, doesn't make sense. Also, Taiwan is very strategic. It sits at the intersection of the East China Sea and the South China Sea. And in wartime, it could prevent Chinese bombers and the Chinese Navy from getting into the Western Pacific. This is very important for us. Now, there are people who are concerned that there will be a major Chinese response, that they will uh, react in some way that will, will punish us. Um, what what could the Chinese conceivably do in response to this, if anything? And, and how big of a how, how dangerous would that be? Well, you know, China can do some very dangerous things right now because it's got a leadership transition, which is unsettled. We have the Chinese military becoming much more influential. Um, this is a country that could go off the rails. So, I mean, we shouldn't minimize the danger. But nonetheless, um, if the United States has a strong and firm policy, if we deter the Chinese, we can at least maintain a stability in East Asia that everyone wants to see. And so that's important for us. But um, you know, we is this establishing the, the opening of a, of a new? You, know, you said this could be a sort of a new approach to China. What would I mean? What could Trump do in this new approach that would be better? It seems like I mean the perception for for many who are looking at this from the outside would be: well, we are always so afraid of rankling China. China doesn't seem afraid of rankling us, though. Well, certainly, and and you know, we've got to remember that last year we had a trade deficit with China of three hundred and thirty four point one billion dollars, and in trade wars. The trade deficit countries have very little to lose. So we've got a lot of cards in this position. Um, that's not to say that China couldn't punish us, but we have, uh, you know, China needs us much more than um, we need them. So I'm not terribly afraid if we have a leader with political will. I don't know if Trump has as much political will as China's Xi Jinping. And we're going to find that out because this does look like the start of a new policy. This phone call was not just something out of the blue that Trump accepted, as he mentioned in a tweet. This was the work of weeks of preparation by Tsai Ing-wen's people and by Donald Trump's people. So this is could be the start of something really big and something really good. Now, okay, how, do, how does it get better? I mean, what, what would the improvements look like? How, how could we gauge success of a new or what would success in a new Trump policy with regard to China and Taiwan look like? 
Um, it would be a China that uh, is no longer selling um, flasks of uranium hexafluoride to the North Koreans, that is no longer giving them the plans for a submarine-launched ballistic missile, which they probably did. It would be a China that's not trying to dismember its neighbors. It would be a China that is not engaging in increasingly predatory trade actions against the United States, like the cybersecurity law that was enacted last month. I mean, success can be measured by a reversal of all the trends that we have seen in China over the last three or four years. Um, but also, I think success is the United States recognizing that we need to support free societies, um, whether they are in strategic parts of the world or not. Taiwan is very strategic, but nonetheless, it is a free society. We need to support them. And what would be a sort of a red line for China, though, with regard to uh, Taiwan policy. People seem to be concerned over the weekend that, you know, this is the, there were tweets and, you know, journalists and such were were all a flutter with, well, this is the kind of thing that could lead to a war. Or this is the sort of thing uh, that could, can be go from diplomacy to military action very quickly. Uh, what what would be the sort of what's too much with regard to U.S. support to Taiwan at this point under Trump administration? What sort of things would you say? Okay, well, let's let's settle that down a little bit. That that's more than we should go at this point. Well, um, we don't know what China's red line is. I mean, they tell us what their red lines are, but you know, as we found out from President Obama in Syria, sometimes your red lines really are not your red lines. Um, I actually think China doesn't have any red lines here. I think that they would really be upset, for instance, if we started um, recognizing Taiwan as the Republic of Taiwan. Um, that might be too much, people would say. I mean, I, I'd be okay with that because that's what it really is. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I think what we can do is start upgrading our relations with Taipei and downgrading our relations with China. We should stop telling the Chinese how important they are because that goes to their head. We're just feeding their sense of self-importance, and that is counterproductive for a good foreign policy. How much of a def uh, of a defense could Taiwan put up if China actually made military a military move towards taking the island? Um, I think the Taiwanese would win, um, but it would be a pretty ugly fight. Um, you know, if Taiwan had a few more uh, anti-ship cruise missiles, um, they would be uh, in a catbird seat. We need to supply some equipment to them. But also, we need to tell China that the United States will defend Taiwan. Um, if we do that, there won't be any war because the Chinese don't want to take on the U.S. Navy and Air Force. Right. And how, how much of, of the population of Taiwan, by the way, do you have some do, do we have some sense? Do we have pretty good polling on their desire to either eventually become part of China or to remain separate? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it's overwhelmingly they want to remain Taiwan and not be a part of the Chinese mainland. But is there is there a pretty strong movement within Taiwan that would actually like to eventually be part of a one China? Uh, no, you know, the, the people who want unification with the People's Republic of China is in single digits. Sometimes it's 10 percent. But, you know, th this follows ethnicity, um, because poll after poll, we see that about two thirds of the people on the island self-identify as Taiwanese and not Chinese. And that gives you a good sense of the percentage that want to be considered the Republic of Taiwan. If China didn't threaten it, I think that you would have somewhere about 65 to 75 percent who would say, let's change the name of the country to Republic of Taiwan.
Do you think that there's uh, something to be said just for the unpredictability of a Trump administration when it comes to its interactions with China? You know, oftentimes in foreign relations, international diplomacy, people will say that consistency and predictability are essential because, you know, it, it, it prevents uh, misunderstandings that can lead to very bad things, whether it's military or economic or otherwise. Uh, but it seems like our policy with China, and, and I've, I've heard you speaking about this many times, Gordon, is, well, we don't want to upset them, but they don't mind upsetting us. So is having a Trump administration that keeps them on their toes just inherently probably a better idea than what we've been doing? Yeah, I mean, the Chinese need to be off balance. You know, in general, the U.S. has global responsibilities, and so certain things need to be consistent. Um, But we do not need to try to have friendly relations with the Chinese, because our job is not to make Chinese autocrats happy. Our job is to maintain peace and stability in East Asia. And because of that, um, you know, sometimes we might have cooperative relations with Beijing. Sometimes we have testy relations. Um, But let's remember, um, just having the Chinese like us is not a goal of American foreign policy, or at least it shouldn't be. Gordon Chang is the author of The Coming Collapse of China and Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. You should follow him on Twitter at Gordon G. Chang. Gordon, we always appreciate when you make the time, sir. Talk to you soon. Thank you very much, Buck. Team, phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. Uh, you have any thoughts on China-Taiwan from over the weekend, please let me know. A call in. Let's talk about it. Also, I'm really curious if you think that I'm off base or if you agree with me that the alt-right is being weaponized as a term for the purposes of the left more than a lot of people seem to realize on the right. Uh, I know that there are bad elements on the uh, within the alt-right, to be sure. I don't know the percentages, but I do know that all of a sudden alt-right has just become a really a, a, a deep and, and clear pejorative. A year ago, that wasn't true. So what changed? Did, our, did the composition of the group change, or is the media changing our perception of it? I want to know what you think about that. 888-900-3393. Sponsor this hour, soundsershop.com. If you haven't thought about it before, I'm telling you, give it some thought. A silencer, a suppressor for your firearm is a fantastic accessory to have. Makes the shooting experience more fun. And the best selection, the best prices, and the best service, which is essential when you're going to get a silencer, is found on silencershop.com. Just go on the site. You can check out everything, testimonials, all the different products. The staff there would be happy to help you. Just give them a call. Send them an email. They'll make sure you know everything, every step of the process to get a silencer. And buying from silencershop.com is like buying local since your local dealer sets the price and makes the profit. So... Team, go to silencershop.com. Again, silencershop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. We will be right back. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. Josh in California, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. Hey, Buck, how's it going? Shields high. Shields high, man. What's up? You know, I think it's uh, you know pretty funny with the whole alt right thing, and really what what I imagine when I think of you know how some of these you know political pundits have come up with. The alt-right, you know, think about when businesses sit inside of a boardroom and they're 
sitting there thinking, you know, how can we attract more, you know, how can we attract more people to us? And they're spouting off ideas and they're, you know, first we're capitalists, then we're racist, then we're, now we're alt-right. So basically they haven't, they can't think of any other terms besides just kind of bunch everything together. We're racist, nationalist, you know, and there's about, what, 250, you know, people that really are Nazis possibly, you know, neo-Nazis, whatever they might be. But that's just a way of getting people to kind of go by what they say and believe that the Republicans are just these nasty, evil people. Yeah, I, I think it's a repackaging of the old everything. Uh, Republicans are always racist strategy, but it sort of gives it this 21st century digital feel. And it make and it also is very hard to disprove. Right. A, a hundred yeah. Twitter accounts can create tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of tweets uh, that are all alt-righty, racist, whatever kind of stuff that, that, that they want to put out there. And whether those are uh, just trolls or they're, look, I mean, they're false flags or any number of things, uh, who knows when you're talking about some of these social media accounts, uh, they, can be seized, they can be seized upon to say, oh, look, see, there's this tide of alt-right sentiment. I mean, they've done analysis on this, and on a lot of the nastiest alt-right stuff uh, from the Trump you know, that was during the Trump campaign was from a very small number of accounts. But yet oh, yeah, this is I, a, this know, is a huge I mean, the, the coverage of 200 people meeting in D.C. Uh, to say some dumb racist stuff was was like wall to wall national news. Oh, yeah. Oh, of course, it's always going to be national news. I think they covered, you know, the alt-right more than they covered any of the terrorist attacks or any of the attacks that happened have happened in America over the past couple years because it doesn't fit into their narrative that we're bad and they're you know superior to us as a as a whole group yeah i mean you know what what if you want to say that feminists are a bunch of unhappy man haters who uh give terrible ideas to women and need to stop with all of their sort of you know nonsense memes and and shaming people online what are you i mean you're you're not generally speaking you're not like a traditional conservative in media so so what are you i mean this is uh, this is where I start to wonder, OK, so if people fight back online uh, against some of the stuff, does, does that make them alt right? Now they're a neo-Nazi. You can see how the, the the term is, I think, intended to become the sort of catch all for right wing racist and anything right wing exactly. will become alt right whenever somebody wants to put it down. Exactly. Like you said, it's just a catch all. Let's put them all in one big basket of deplorables. Yep. All right. Josh in California, good to talk to you, my friend. Shields High. Team Hour 2 coming up. New topics, new stuff. Be right back. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.